DW Inside Europe. Hello and welcome. I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. On today's programme, BB's Back History, the shipping accommodation at the heart of Britain's asylum debate, was once used by the German city of Hamburg. A lot of refugees come by boat. They have on their journey a lot of fear. If you put them on a, on a floating home on a river, it can uh, trigger their trauma again. Windfall taxes, how do they work and why is there so much pushback? Croatian tourism boom, but who's going to staff it? And bottling it up, Georgia's iconic Borjomi water takes a sanctions-related sales hit. Those stories and more coming up on the programme. In recent weeks, BB Stockholm, an engineless barge owned by the shipping company BB Line, has become the latest symbol of Britain's hardline approach to asylum seekers. The plan is for the three-storey accommodation vessel to house up to 500 male asylum seekers. The British Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, claims that the barge offers the British taxpayer better value for money than other options, but critics say that conditions on the vessel are entirely inappropriate for housing vulnerable people. In order to gauge the accuracy of these claims, I spoke to Susanna Schwentke, press spokesperson for Ferdin und Vornen, the organisation that oversees homeless and refugee accommodation in the German city of Hamburg, which used the BB Stockholm to house refugees back in the 1990s. It is hard for for the people. These are very hard conditions for traumatised people, especially boats for traumatised people, they can be really unfit. A lot of refugees come by boat. They have on their journey a lot of fear. If you put them on a, on a floating home on a river, it can uh, trigger their trauma again. There's a second big disadvantage of boats. They uh, are only fit for healthy young People, they are full of barriers. They have very steep stairs, so you can't house small children or elderly people there. They are unfit for handicapped people, and this is a big disadvantage because if you imagine now on on this boat uh, in England, up to five hundred young people without families, without this social mixture of young and old, uh, of, of family and single persons who help each other, who um, can comfort each other. Maybe there are young men only 18 years old and have left, left their families behind. If there's a, another family next door who is kind to them, it helps them extremely to, uh, to integrate and, and to tolerate their situation. But if you have only these lonely young people on a boat, this can be very hard. And I, I mean, already the, the British housing scheme has run into trouble. Uh, last Friday, the vessel had to be evacuated because there was an outbreak of Legionella, so a deadly bacteria in the water supply. Um, the British press has also reported that an asylum seeker with TB has been given notice that he is to be moved onto the barge. If these kind of reports were to surface about accommodation that your organisation was overseeing, 
what kind of response would there be? What kind of protocols would there be in place to, to ensure the response? It is very, very important that you have got a plan for everything that can go wrong. You have to follow a strict plan to isolate the person, to isolate contact persons. All these things are the more important, the more narrow um, is the housing. Um, we have also housings uh, where um, a family has got a kind of flat with rooms and kitchen and bathroom and there's nobody else with them in, in the flat. Um, this is a good housing. Um, most of the places in Hamburg are like this. And um, in the in the housings where all the people live together and share the bathrooms and share the kitchens, you have to maintain very much hygiene, very uh, narrow control of the hygiene. And uh, there, there's a lot of people who work in these shelters and housings who always have a look at if everything is all right. Yeah, uh, there's a lot of things to think of. The city of Hamburg, like a lot of other German cities, has come under intense housing pressure, in part due to the massive influx of refugees in, in recent years. Um, would the city consider a return to the use of offshore accommodation for asylum seekers? No, I don't have the impression that anybody is considering housing on a ship because it is the most impractical solution. If you imagine all the people who live there, all the canalization on the boat must function all the time. You have got washing machines that people have to do their washing. All these things are very, very difficult on the infrastructure on such a boat. So um, we are quite happy that we don't need boats at the moment. Thanks to Susanne Schwentke of Föden und Wohnen, the organisation overseeing homeless and refugee accommodation in the city of Hamburg for that interview. Now, let's talk about money. Italy's government attempted to play Robin Hood last week by imposing a windfall tax on the profits of the country's banks. The announcement of a one-off 40% levy on interest income may have been popular with voters struggling with the cost of living crisis, but it sent shockwaves through the financial markets. Most European Union countries, as well as the UK, have ordered windfall taxes on energy companies over the past year as a way of offsetting the huge rise in electricity and heating costs caused by Russia's invasion of Ukraine. But do windfall taxes work? Nick Martin tapped two economists to find out how things have fared. È un prelievo sugli extra profitti delle banche nel 2023. When he announced the windfall tax last week, Italian Deputy Prime Minister Matteo Salvini was quick to vilify banks for holding back interest rate rises to save us while hiking mortgage rates. E quindi in questo gap, in questo range there has not been a speedy increase of interest rates for bank account holders. So we will impose a 40% levy on this gap of profits earned by banks worth multi-billion euros. But after bank shares sold off dramatically in reaction, the government was forced to eat humble pie and cap the tax, meaning it would raise less than the initial 3 billion euros forecast. 
While Italian banks have profited over the past year from higher interest rates, some economists question why the government would target the financial sector when investor confidence in Italy remains shaky. Duncan Simpson is from the Adam Smith Institute, which advocates for free market economics. The total level of debt-to-GDP ratio in Italy is one of the highest in the West. The level of state spending is very severe. It's sort of doubly curious why the Italian government introduced this measure in the first place. I mean, many banks, years before COVID, years before the collapse of Lehman Brothers, for example, were effectively zombie banks. They were not particularly successful. Um, There's been various iterations of bailouts over the years. Italian financial services has not exactly been thriving for many, many years. So to go and do that is odd. Windfall taxes seek to raise money from firms who have seen their profits surge extraordinarily. They are a clear hit with voters, especially at a time of growing economic inequality. As people increasingly struggle to meet their monthly expenses due to rising inflation, heavily indebted European governments are constrained in how much they can hike income taxes. So one-off taxes on excessive profits are an obvious next step, says Rebecca Christie, a non-resident fellow at the Brussels-based think tank Bruegel. The pandemic really turned upside down the model of how people were supporting their economies. You had pretty much every sector needing some kind of support. Then as things began to come back, you had other factors that came from the outside, like the war in Ukraine, just so many shocks to the system that people got used to a higher level of government involvement in the economy. Once you have the government helping you stay afloat, helping you stay profitable, it makes sense that government would want to have a hand in just how much of that you get to keep and how much you have to return to society. When the UK government imposed a windfall tax on the energy sector last year, the Treasury expected to raise an extra £40 billion over six years. But with oil prices having fallen sharply since, that figure could almost half. Supporters of the tax say the energy sector should give back after benefiting from huge government subsidies for investments in renewable energies. Votant 335, exprimé 315, majorité 158, pour 227, contre 88, l'Assemblée nationale a adopté. Instead of targeting the energy sector, France's parliament approved plans last year for a one-off tax on the dividends of all large companies. Christie, who is also the Brussels columnist for Reuters Breaking Views, says windfall taxes can work if they don't come as a shock to the affected economic sector. In Spain, it appears that some of the energy windfall taxes have not hurt the power companies and have helped the government and helped keep finances in check. In Italy, they've done earlier rounds of these bank taxes that went okay, which I think is why they tried again with this. They communicated it pretty badly. If you create a fall in market confidence with the very tax you're using to balance things out, you're not getting the benefit from it. So I understand why they pulled back. Italian banks claw back some of yesterday's losses as the government says the impact from its surprise tax will be limited. Italy might be the one taking the rap, but it's not the only EU country to target banks. Hungary, Lithuania, Spain and the Czech Republic have also imposed windfall taxes on their financial sectors. But while these levies may be easy to introduce, some fear European governments will be loath to retract them as they become addicted to the additional public spending power they offer. Nick Martin, DW. There's been a welcome windfall for Croatia this summer as it enjoys a bumper year for tourism, breaking the records set before the Covid pandemic.
Adopting the euro and joining the borderless Schengen area has made it even more attractive for visitors. But the boom is also highlighting a perennial problem. There aren't enough hospitality staff to serve the sunseekers. So increasingly, businesses are turning to Asia to solve staffing shortages, as Guy Delaunay reports. Croatia's summer season is getting into full swing, with the coast set to be more popular than ever. The first six months of this year saw a record number of visitors arrive in Croatia. There's one problem, though. There don't seem to be enough hospitality workers to serve all these new arrivals. Whole Croatia is understaffed for West two years. Public service, uh, private companies, uh, shipyards, they're everywhere, uh, in, in every company, missing few guys, you know, in some positions. Nino Kaifesh-Sviatic runs an employment agency called CP Recruitment. He specialises in matching Croatian employers in need with workers from Asia who can do the job. Asian people, when they come, they have a triple or, or a four... A or a four times bigger salary than in, in, in their countries, you know, so it, it's very good for them to come there. So you have partners in these other countries in South Asia? Yeah, we have agents in, in Bahrain, in Dubai, we have uh, in Qatar, uh, in New Delhi, in Bombay. And uh, where are most of them coming from? India and, and Nepal now, it's, uh, it's I think, 80%. This stylish Japanese restaurant wouldn't look out of place in Tokyo. It's all blonde and dark woods with a bench where you can see your sushi being made for you. But actually, we're in Croatia's largest port town, Rijeka, and this is Fukuro, a Japanese restaurant where the chef has come all the way from Indonesia. My name is Putu Perasveri. I'm from Bali, Indonesia, so... It's my first year in Croatia. I love my job, everybody happy. Also the guests always say the atmosphere is very good. And the company which runs Fukuro and other restaurants is delighted with its new workforce. Diana Yarcic is the sales manager. These times many local and uh, region employees went to northern part of Europe, uh, to Germany, to Austria, with uh, finding some better conditions there. We try uh, through the agency uh, in Asia, and we are really, really very satisfied with these workers because they are very, very friendly, always smiling. We are really, really very satisfied with them. How are people in, in Croatia um, reacting to having hospitality staff from Asian countries, which is a new experience for them? These are different cultures, for sure. But, uh, I don't know, we are very open-minded and uh, we always accept all the, all the other cultures, other uh, people from all, uh, other, from all over the world. For me, for example, I like to earn another cultures to make uh, some new friendships, everything. And I think we are open-minded from them. At another Rijeka restaurant, Tarsha, the workers say they're enjoying their side of the cultural exchange. My name is Chilindur Sebab. I'm from Nepal. Nepal, we don't have much salary. It can't let us to live good life in Croatia. We can do the same work and earn much better salary. Hello, my name is Asafuria. I'm from Nepal. There is lots of people in Croatian people. It's very nice. And they are also friendly and familiar. So there is uh, my workers, they are very friendly, and others, my bosses, they are very pretty good. 
very nice, my boss. So it's com it's nice to work here. With the tourism wave still on the rise, the demand for workers is only likely to increase. And as the recruitment agent Nino told me, for Croatia, Asia is the future. Brittany have that process before 100 years. Uh, Germany have before uh, 40 years ago. Now Croatia come to that process, you know, that, uh, that other people come to work here, you know, because we are now pa uh, part of the Schengen zone and a lot of things are changed from Yugoslavia until today, you know. So some people see here a new home, new, new future, new possibilities, and I think it's normal, you know. And right now, Croatia's new normal is hosting hospitality workers who've made longer journeys than many of the tourists they're serving. Guy Delaunay, DW, Rijeka. I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. You're listening to Inside Europe. After Russia invaded Ukraine last year, European countries swiftly launched sanctions against many Russian companies. The sanctions were supposed to hurt Russia's economy, but the effects have also been felt by some European companies that aren't even located in Russia. One example is an iconic brand of mineral water called Borjomi that's produced in the country of Georgia in the South Caucasus. From the town of Borjomi, Levi Bridges reports. As legend has it, wounded deer were healed by lye water found in the Borjomi Gorge. According to legend, the mineral springs in Borjomi were discovered by a group of soldiers back in the 19th century who learned the spring water has miraculous health benefits. Today, the drink's origin story is even repeated in advertisements. The word about Borjomi water traveled through mountains and valleys, reaching far and wide. The water was later bottled and shipped throughout the former Soviet Union. And Borjomi turned into an iconic part of our culture. Today, you can still find Borjomi in supermarkets and restaurants from Kiev to Kazakhstan. It's one of Georgia's best-known brands, kind of like Coca-Cola for Americans. In the town of Borjomi, locals line up beside a public fountain to fill up big plastic jugs of mineral water for free. I step in line and fill up my own water bottle. Okay, let's taste it. <sighs> Salty. It tastes a little bit like sulfur and hard-boiled eggs. The stuff you buy at the store is much better. The bottled version of Borjomi has a softer taste, much more drinkable than what bubbles up here. And according to many Georgians, the water's health benefits aren't just something promoted in company ads. They're for real. Here at the spring, I meet Irina Shevchenka. She's a retired hydrogeologist who sells bottles of pomegranate wine to tourists. 
Вот когда, например, у тебя вздутие, у тебя болит желудок. If you're bloated or your stomach hurts, Shevchenko says, it'll cure what ails you. It's also supposedly very effective at curing a hangover. And over the centuries, borjomi has become an essential part of Georgian cuisine. Always borjomi was part of our lives because there was no way you open the fridge and there is no cold borjomi in there. Tiko Tuskadze is the author of a Georgian cookbook called Supra. She used to visit borjomi with her grandmother, but she says honestly she didn't like the water as a kid. My grandmother, religiously, three times a day, you have to have a warm borjomi coming straight from the fountain, and I was dreading it. When she got older, Tuskadze acquired a taste for borjomi. She says it's such an important part of Georgian cuisine that the way you set the table during feasts is actually organized around bottles of borjomi and other drinks. But recently, borjomi has run into hard times because of the war in Ukraine. Last year, it was not good year. Okay, It was bad year for the company. Levan Bagdavadze is president of the company that owns borjomi. He says Ukraine was one of its biggest markets, but sales nosedived after the Russian invasion. To make matters worse, a Russian-Israeli oligarch named Mikhail Friedman, who owned a majority stake in the company, was sanctioned by the EU and the UK. So some Baltic countries, like Estonia, stopped doing business with Berjomi. The problem was to receive the money from abroad. There was some rejection with the transactions. To solve the problem, Friedman's investment group handed over some of their Borjomi shares to the Georgian government. So the majority of the company would be owned by Georgians, not Russians. Bagdavadze says sanctions aren't a problem anymore. But Tiko Tuskadze, the cookbook author, says she still can't find enough Borjomi anywhere to stock the Georgian restaurants that she runs in London. It's really upsetting. It's like if somebody goes to pizza place and says, oh, sorry, we're not able to serve you with pizza today. But here in the town of Borjomi, the water is still flowing. The Borjomi factory here has already been through two world wars, and the water is still flowing during this current conflict. Levi Bridges, DW, Borjomi, Georgia. So now that we're all safely hydrated, time for something a little bit different. Welcome to the first of our weekly listener questions, a new segment that'll be a mixed bag of fun facts and feedback. To get us started, our senior editor, Helen Sini, who is, by the way, the biggest Euro trivia nut that I know, and I know quite a few of them, came up with this little audio tease. Yeah, we know that you know that that is the tune most commonly known as God Save the King. But the question is, which European country shares this national anthem with the UK? Is it Liechtenstein, Luxembourg or Monaco? And I'll give you a clue. The country in question celebrated its national day this week. Do you think you know the answer? If so, then Spotify is the place you need to head over to. We have a poll up there. In order to find it, click on this week's episode in the Spotify app. Have fun. This is Inside Europe and I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. 
This is Inside Europe and I'm Kate Laycock in Germany. Still to come in the next half hour, a leaked email reveals George Soros' Open Society Foundations is planning a major withdrawal from Europe. We talk to Emily Tampkin, author of The Influence of Soros, Politics, Power and the Struggle for an Open Society. When Hungarian officials or politicians say, well, our issue isn't that he's Jewish, our issue is that he's a globalist, like they're using a word that they have been told many times is code for Jewish. Also on the show, a look at the conditions of migrant workers bringing in the Spanish harvest, why the French are ditching lawnmowers in favour of sheep, and why so many British microbreweries are calling last orders on craft beer. Broadcasting from Germany, this is Inside Europe. This week, the Reuters news agency caused something of a stir when it reported on a leaked email revealing that Open Society Foundations, the charity funded by billionaire George Soros, plans to withdraw or terminate large parts of its work within the European Union as it shifts its focus to other parts of the world. Born as Georgi Schwarz in Hungary in 1930, his Jewish family changed their name to Soros and survived the war years by passing as Christians, George Soros went on to study at the London School of Economics, where he encountered the ideas of the philosopher Karl Popper and became a devotee of the idea of an open society, a liberal vision of a society which thrives on democracy and debate. At the same time, he embarked on the formidable financial career that would form the basis of his future wealth and influence. And that is the point at which I'd like to hand the story over to my guest, Emily Tampkin, journalist and author of The Influence of Soros, Politics, Power and the Struggle for an Open Society. So as you say, he goes into finance, he eventually makes his way to New York, and he becomes um, basically the world's most famous uh, currency speculator. Really, I mean, really in in world history, and very, very famously plays a large part in this so-called breaking of the Bank of England by sort of realizing that the UK staying in the European exchange rate mechanism was not sustainable. Now, the reason that I say that there's a tension is that when you take decisions like shorting the pound, you are taking financial action that has political consequences and that perhaps destabilizes the societies, excuse me, that on the philanthropic end, you're trying to to better. Maybe we could talk a bit about the Open Society Foundations and indeed sort of earlier iterations of Soros philanthropy. What's he spending his money on, to put it bluntly? Yeah, I mean, so Hungary is the first one. And the big the big move was buying photocopiers which allowed just average people to become dissidents because it sort of loosened the government's grip on the dissemination of information. Shortly after Hungary, there's Poland. Eventually, he ends up very invested in Russia, which ends up kicking out open society in the 2010s. But we should say it's not just photocopiers. It's also, you know, a a Hungarian friend of mine said that he first became aware of it because like their milk at lunch as a kid had been paid for by Soros's philanthropic efforts, or, you know, you'll meet people who grew up in that time, and they participated in debating societies, or, um, you know, sort of artistic endeavors were paid for by Soros's philanthropic efforts. Interestingly, Viktor Orban and Fidesz are, are students at the time, and they receive money from Soros's philanthropy. 
it's one of those quirks of history, isn't it? Because, of course, demonization of Soros has been absolutely central to Viktor Orban's sort of strategy for holding on to power. Maybe we could talk a bit about Soros as, as this sort of bogeyman of both the American and, and the European far right. How did this happen? Well, it's been there really for decades. But in the US, it really starts in 2004, which is when Soros decides that the re-election of George W. Bush is completely counter to the idea of, of open society. And, and it's come and gone in waves here since then. But really, the big wave in the United States, I would say, starts after Viktor Orban comes back to power in Hungary. And with American political consultant Arthur Finkelstein and, and his associate Birnbaum, really goes back and, and, and sort of dusts off the Soros conspiracy theory as a way to have a political enemy that you don't actually need to run against. So you don't need to elevate any of your actual <laughs> political opponents. You can blame this person for really every ill. And the role of anti-Semitism within that demonization of George Soros? I would argue that you sort of can't separate it out. It, it, like it's, it's so baked into... Soros conspiracy theories, because even if a person never says, like, I'm not going to say the word Jewish in the following sentence, right? But if I say, there is a shadowy figure who works in finance and lives in New York, and is pulling the puppet strings and trying to corrode our nation, because all of these anti-Semitic tropes are so in the water, the synopsis of anti-Semitism light up. And so when Hungarian officials or politicians say, well, our issue isn't that he's Jewish. Our issue is that he's a globalist. Like they're using a word that they've been told many times is code for Jewish. Soros conspiracy theories work because that trope is so innately understood in so many places. And because his project is, of course, an internationalist one, and his name has been very much attached to the project. Mm -hmm. And this is the thing. And I think especially in Hungary, where in the very beginning, he really liked that there was this almost sort of magical quality of like, I think at one point they described it as manna from heaven, right? Like, all of suddenly there's this funding and where is it from? And it's, it's sort of like the philanthropic fairy godmother. But I think that that has come back and had some, uh, you know, there have been side effects of that. I mean, that funding now, certainly in European terms, looks as though it may be set to dry up. I mean, were you surprised by that announcement? Um, what do you think is going on internally within the Open Society Foundations that would would make that look like a, an option that they would take? I was surprised, but I shouldn't have been. The reason that I should not have been surprised is that they've already announced that they're cutting 40% of staff. But the reason that I actually was surprised by the announcement is that various Central and Eastern European countries joined the EU in the early 2000s. And people sort of thought, okay, like, this is it. They're not transitioning democracies anymore. They are now democracies. And basically, right after this happens, you know, you have Orban, or as it's happening, Orban comes back to power. You have Fica, who, uh, in Slovakia, who comes to power, who it looks like may be reelected in, in September of this year. You know, obviously, Poland's also had its struggles with the rule of law and the EU. And so it was a little surprising to hear very similar logic to sort of justify this current cut. Well, I mean, that brings me to my final and probably most important question, which is, what does this withdrawal mean for Europe? You know, Soros says this quote, it was on the wall of a building in the Central European University. And it basically says that reality will always outrun your thinking. 
which is a pretentious way of saying that I'm not going to try to predict exactly what this means for Europe. But what I do want to stress is that the first people that I thought of when I heard this news were people who were working in NGOs or who were activists or who were speaking out about their governments in places like Hungary, which are still in the EU but are not living up to the EU's stated values. Those people are still going to be smeared as Soros stooges, as anti-nationals, as you know, agents of internationalism and this and that, and they will be doing so with less support. The shame of it is the people who did believe who, and who do believe in the ethos of an open society, those are going to be the people who are most negatively impacted by this decision. I was talking to Emily Tampkin, journalist and author of The Influence of Soros, Politics, Power and the Struggle for an Open Society. Now to the second in our two-part look at the conditions faced by the migrants, many of them from Africa, bringing in the European harvest. This time we're off to the south of Spain, to the province of Almeria to be precise, home to over 32,000 hectares of greenhouses. The territory, in fact, is so vast that the area has become known as the Mar di Plastico, the Plastic Sea. But beyond the plastic facade lies a story of human struggle. Inside these greenhouses, migrant agricultural workers are often forced to work in temperatures of up to 50 degrees Celsius, that is 122 degrees Fahrenheit, and to live in substandard accommodation. This report is by Giada Santana, Claudia Coliva and Sofia Alvarez-Jurado. It is voiced by Giada Santana. Names in this report have been changed for security reasons. In the province of Almeria, one of Europe's largest agricultural regions, a small group of migrant workers is protesting about their working conditions. They're employed by an agricultural company called Biosabor. Most of them work in greenhouses, harvesting strawberries, cucumbers, and tomatoes. During the hot summer months, temperatures inside the greenhouses can exceed 50 degrees. The workers are not usually provided with water or sanitary services. One of the protesters, Ahmed, 53, moved to Spain from Morocco in 1998. Despite his 20 years of experience in agriculture, he's paid 6 euros an hour. That's 2 euros less than the minimum wage in Spain. And he struggles with exploitative work conditions that endanger his health. Whenever we begin in the morning, we come back home with our clothes all wet with perspiration. We have to change them in the morning and then in the afternoon again. It's very hot, about 60 degrees. You can't go in there. You can't stay in there. At noon, you eat inside the greenhouse. The fact that you shouldn't be without a mask because of the pesticides, that doesn't matter to the boss. The boss says, don't go outside, eat here. It says on the sign on the door that you can't eat inside the greenhouse. But then, in practice, we do it. Many employers behave abusively towards their workers. Farid is from Guinea. He's a father of three and was fired in June for low productivity. He'd been protesting against the treatment of workers at the Biosabur company. He spent 80 years working in the greenhouses, and the extreme conditions had darkened his skin. If you go inside a greenhouse at 11 or 12 o'clock, you will see how hot it is. It's over 50 degrees centigrade. Look at my face. 
All this darker skin is due to the greenhouse's plastic roof. Sometimes I had to work under a double plastic cover. The man that just jumped into the conversation is Musa from Senegal. Two years ago, he witnessed one of his older colleagues collapse because of heat stroke and break his hip. Dealing with the heat is even more challenging for the over 3,000 workers that live in the informal settlements scattered throughout Almeria. One of the largest is Atochares, where people live in homes made of plastic, just like the greenhouses they work in. There's no running water, so they get their supply from wells they've dug themselves. 25-year-old Karim boils water every day after work to cook, shower, and clean his shack. Well, we have a tap and there is a well outside my house. I take my bottles over there and back to my house. I heat the water and take a shower. The water is not for drinking, you know what I mean? I buy water at a store here. We buy some bottles, you know, at 50 cents each. The company does not give us water. Karim works in a greenhouse 11 hours a day for 6 euros per hour. Still, he considers himself one of the lucky ones. Unlike many, he doesn't have to pay his employer in order to work legally. If you want a contract, my boss even gives you one for free. Due to the lack of comprehensive data, it's hard to grasp the true impact that ever hotter temperatures are having on the lives and health of these agricultural workers. But various studies show that heat correlates with a considerably higher risk of workplace accidents. Fernando Plaza is a former nurse at a local hospital. His investigations proved that many victims of alleged domestic and traffic accidents were in fact involved in work-related incidents. Plaza says that for migrants working off the books, telling the truth often means losing their job, as employers refuse to take responsibility for what happens within their greenhouses. No public entity or institution has taken the time to investigate this because it means looking into the conditions of migrant workers. And here there's an institutional silence, not to mention a journalistic one. It's a very complicit silence. One person who has protested about the failure of institutions when it comes to workplace inspections and working conditions is Jose Garcia. He's a representative with the SOCSAT trade union, and he shows us the contract of a worker who came to him for help. The contract should show the minimum wage a bonus based on seniority, a public transport subsidy, and other benefits. In practice, this never happens. Still, workers accept it, but in exchange for what? Piecemeal work, weekends, and late shifts, without those days being declared as overtime and often going beyond the legal working limit. Surely, many businessmen would be in jail if there was proper accountability. Companies like Biosabor have been to court for irregularities in workers' contracts, salaries, and firing processes. But they continue to export to 25 different countries. In Europe, their products are sold in major supermarkets like Lidl and Carrefour. When we approached Biosabor for a comment, the company assured us that they always comply with the law. An EU draft law on corporate due diligence might change things. 
It aims to address human rights violations perpetrated along the supply chain, but it's still being negotiated. So in the meantime, workers like Ahmed, Karim, and Farid will keep trying to make a living while struggling to stay alive. Giada Santana voicing that report, which was made in collaboration with Claudia Coliva and Sofia Alvarez-Jurado and made possible thanks to the International Journalism Fund and the European Journalism Centre. The names of all the migrant workers whose voices were featured in the report have been changed for their own protection. Now, do lawnmowers dream of electric sheep? That is a question that I did not know that I was itching to ask until I heard John Lawrenson's report into the strange but really rather adorable phenomenon that is sweeping French lawns at the moment. Sheep as lawnmowers. From Euro Disney to the vineyards of Bordeaux, ovine lawn maintenance really is a thing. Thomas de Bastos, a sheep farmer, calls to a herd of his sheep at his family farm Ferme du Puy, near the town of Dreux in France's Centre region. My grandfather and my mother were sheep breeders. They raised sheep for the meat, but when I took over the farm two years ago, I wanted to diversify, and we started eco-grazing, as we call it. Eco-grazing, where sheep are used to maintain the green spaces around company premises and public buildings, has now become the Ferme du Puy's main activity. They have over 300 sheep, keeping the grass down across almost 50 sites. Avant de before we bring the sheep to a site, we take a look at the soil and the flora and decide how many sheep we are going to put to graze that surface area. It's usually close to one sheep for a thousand square meters, 10 sheep per hectare. As for the cost, it starts at 70 euros a month for smaller sites, with two or three sheep rising up to seven or eight thousand euros a year for the biggest ones. In any case, it's about the same, even a little less, than the cost of maintaining those same green spaces mechanically. Comparativement à un entretien mécanique que ferait une entreprise de paysage, on est sur des coûts similaires, voire même inférieurs à l'entretien mécanique. The advantages of getting sheep rather than mechanical lawnmowers to do the job are, says Bastos, multiple. The first advantage is ecological. Because we're not using machines, there's a reduction in CO2 emissions. It's also less noise pollution. Having sheep on your land also creates a link between people. People tend to group together and chat where there are animals. There's also an educational aspect, the link between humans and animals. And there's another practical aspect. Sheep and goats have have no problem with steep slopes, so they can go to work on grassy areas that mechanical lawnmowers can't reach. Bassos's sheep are employed to maintain the green spaces at nursing homes, schools, town halls and, above all, private companies. 
A few kilometres away from the Ferme du Puy, at a large logistics company called Valley Transport, lorries rumble out of the depot while, not far away, sheep nibble peacefully on the spring grass and flowers. They have a hut if they want to shelter from the sun or the rain. Bastos comes every couple of weeks to check everything's going all right, especially in winter when the grass is thin on the ground and he has to feed them. At another nearby company, a beer and wine distribution firm called Sévin, site manager Maxime Gibert has had a couple of sheep, plus goats in summertime, keeping the vegetation in order around his depot for the past 18 months. They have, he says, made a big impact. Ah oui, oui, honnêtement. Oh yes, they make a big difference. I remember when I arrived here, the grass came up to our knees. There was a good 20 to 25 centimeters. They may not look like it, but these sheep have good appetites. For us, using sheep instead of men with machines means we get an ecological certification that benefits us economically. But also we are pleased to provide work for a local farm. And it's nice for the people who work here. But not everyone sees eco-grazing in such a positive light. Astrid Prévost works for the French vegetarian association AVF. She's sceptical about the environmental benefits. The first thing we have to ask ourselves is eco-grazing compared to what? If it's eco-grazing compared to having parking lots, of course it's far better. But to bring the sheep on the, on the place of eco-grazing, it requires transportation. And, well, the sheep obviously are not the, the animal who produce uh, the more, uh, like, uh, CO2 or uh, methane, like, uh, like cows or like this. But still, you need to feed the animals. So this has also an impact on the, on the environment and on the planet. The best solution, says Prévost, is to let the vegetation grow wild. The best thing to do is to let nature be its own regulator. And so in many places, we probably don't need any grazing at all. Many, many farmers say that, um, that it's, uh, it's good because it, um, it can help like the landscapes and like this, but actually the nature doesn't need us to, to make this. I think for this, we also need to review maybe what we consider like beautiful and uh, what uh, what we would like as as landscape. So I think it's something that maybe will come progressively. Back at the Ferme du Puy, Thomas de Bastos can at least reassure Astrid Prévost on one point. His sheep never end up as cutlets. They live, he says, peaceful lives and die of old age. The only thing they ask them to do is to nibble the grass. John Lawrence and DW, Dreux, France. Biting back the incredibly strong urge to yodel, I am instead going to tell you that I'm Kate Laycock in Germany and that you are listening to Inside Europe. Now, 
they say that all good investigative journalism begins with a question. And in the case of our last and final report of the show, that question was, what's up with all the disappearing beer in the UK? The country's got some 2,000-odd breweries, many of them small craft breweries, which have seen a boom in the past 15 years. But these smaller businesses have suddenly begun closing down at an alarming rate, as Laj Bavanga reports from Manchester. Hi, Steve. Hey, yeah. Hi, Laj. Laj, yes. Come on in, mate. Thank you. Until recently, Steve Donkley ran the small craft brewery Beer Nouveau from under these railway arches in Manchester. You might hear trains passing overhead as I talk to him. Black tea or black coffee? Black coffee. Or beer? Late last year, he could no longer afford to keep the brewery running and closed his business. Brexit, that's what started it off. The price of ingredients started to go up. As an example, the majority of yeast that was used in the UK at the time in the, in the craft breweries was shipped in from the continent. And that went up from £30-£35 a packet to about £75-£80 a packet. Other ingredients like grain and hops also shot up in price and then Covid hit. With lockdown, many fell out of the habit of going to the pub for craft beers and later many could no longer afford to buy them because they'd lost earnings in lockdown. Today, on top of all that, more economic strains. The cost of electricity has gone up, the cost of our water has gone up. A lot of landlords have put the price of their rent right up as well. So the cost of everything in the way of producing beer has gone up and the amount of customers that there are to drink it has dropped down because they can't afford to. Steve Dunkley has compiled a list of how many craft breweries closed in 2022. He came to just under 90. So far this year, another 33 have closed. Until now, the UK has had more craft breweries per capita than any other country, a result of the removal back in 2002 of beer duty for smaller breweries. With the current trend of closures, however, the UK's top position in the craft brewery world could change. At this beer festival just outside of Manchester city centre, breweries come to exchange experiences and to offer their products to thirsty customers. Chris Walkton is one of the festival organisers. It's very, very difficult for them. Um, we like to give them a showcase here and hopefully for local people. Uh, and in fact, there are quite a lot of people I know who come two or three hundred kilometres away to come here. Chris Walkton believes there is still room for smaller breweries in the UK because they can offer something that the bigger, more industrial breweries cannot compete with. If you can give a personal service, a lot of smaller breweries like to experiment with different beers. So, you know, they can have a play around where the big brewers just haven't got the ability to, to mess about with things. Craft breweries typically offer stronger, more specialised beers like IPAs, sours, smoky porters and all kinds of more experimental brews. I'm off to see one of the breweries that have managed to keep going strong despite all the current challenges. Torside Brewery in the village of New Mills in the Peak District National Park, east of Manchester. <laughs> and then we steep all the barley with hot water in the mash tun in the middle. Tourside Brewery co-founder Chris Clough shows me around. The secret to their continued success, he believes, is not to grow too big and to be ready to distribute your beer yourself on top of selling it through pubs and shops. 
when COVID hit, we were able to repackage and sell locally. We got massive support from the local community for that. We did some slightly more experimental stuff with blending existing beers together to create a new beer, which I think if you're a much bigger, more automated brewery, you would probably struggle to do things like that, whereas we've got the flexibility to kind of make things up on the fly. Despite the rapid rate of closures, there are still more than 1,700 active small breweries in the UK, according to the latest official statistics from 2021. The future is not all doom and gloom, in other words. Even Steve Donkley at the now closed-down Beer Nouveau Brewery raises a glass and turns the other cheek. Last autumn, you were saying, uh, with a heavy heart, we're going to have to wind up business. How how does that feel after having built it up from scratch? Oh, I like having my weekends back, I can tell you that. <laughs> that draft of Mancunian spirit there was tapped for you by Laj Bavanga. Last orders have now been officially called on this episode of Inside Europe. The programme was produced by Helen Sini, with help from me, Kate Laycock, and sound engineer Ziad Abu Sleiman. Our feedback address is insideeurope at dw.com and you can subscribe to our podcast in all the usual places. Inside Europe comes to you from DW in Germany. <laughs>